Section 12. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics. Chapter 7. The Nature of Light, Part 1. To the phenomenon of total reflection was added in the very beginning of the 19th century another bit of evidence which the exponents of the corpuscular theory of light found difficult to explain away. This was the phenomenon of interference. Two plates of glass, touching at one end and separated at the other by a fine hair, will form between them a thin wedge of air. If a bright light is held near the plates, they will be seen crossed with dark and bright bands. Thomas Young, a brilliant young English physicist, experimenting with these plates and studying the dark bands, stated in a famous paper on light that they were due to the interference of light waves from the two surfaces of the wedge of air included between the plates of glass. He showed how the waves of light from these two surfaces might be proved to meet at intervals and produce the appearance of darkness, just as two sound waves may be combined to produce silence. This remarkable paper, by far the most valuable contribution to the study of optics since the time of Newton, attracted no favorable attention, and was received with open scorn and contempt by the editor of the Edinburgh Review. The young scientist is represented by this illustrious organ as deficient in the powers of solid thinking, and his theories dismissed as feeble lucubrations without any traces of learning, acuteness, or ingenuity. John Tyndall, that great and fascinating Irish scientist, writes of Young, For twenty years this man of genius was quenched, hidden from the appreciative genius of his countrymen, deemed in fact a dreamer through the vigorous sarcasm of a writer who had then possession of the public ear. To the celebrated Frenchman Fresnel and Arago, he was first indebted for the restitution of his rights. The soundness of Young's reasoning has been abundantly attested to by the verdict of later investigators, and the known fact of the interference of light is today held to be one of the compelling arguments in favor of light as a form of vibration. Difficult of explanation as the fact of interference proved, from a corpuscular basis, still more did prismatic dispersion prove itself an occasion of falling. Everyone is familiar with the beautiful color effects obtainable with the aid of a triangular prism of glass, and has noted how a beam of white light may be spread out in a band of colors as the ray is bent through the prism. In this spreading out, it is evident that some of the rays are bent more than others. Unless the corpuscles of light were infinite in variety, this would be simply inexplicable as a corpuscular phenomenon. The prism as an instrument of optical study found its first great master in Isaac Newton, the observation of its effects had been noted by the Roman philosopher Seneca, and in the period of the Renaissance, the breaking up of white light into colors was discussed by Grimaldi, Descartes, Hooke, and others. 
but it required the supreme genius of Newton to make clear the true idea of the dispersion of light. With rough appliances fashioned by his own hands, he conducted his experiments. In his treatise on optics, he quaintly remarks, I procured me a triangular glass prism to try therewith the celebrated phenomena of colors, and in order thereto, having darkened my chamber, and made a small hole in my window shuts to let in a convenient quantity of the sun's light, I placed my prism at his entrance, that it might be thereby refracted to the opposite wall. He goes on to say how surprised he was to find that the ray of light, after passing through the prism, instead of being thrown upon the wall in the form of a round spot, was spread out into a beautiful colored ribbon, or spectrum, red at one end, yellow in the middle, and bluish green at the other end. Comparing the length of this colored spectrum with its breadth, he continues, I found it about five times greater, a disproportion so extravagant that it excited me to a more than ordinary curiosity of examining from whence it might proceed. Then I began to suspect whether the rays, after their trajection through the prism, did not move in curved lines, and according to their more or less curvity, tend to diverse parts of the wall, and it increased my suspicion when I remembered that I had often seen a tennis ball struck with an oblique racket describe such a curved line. For a circular, as well as a progressive motion being communicated to it by that stroke, its parts on that side where the motions conspire must press and beat the contiguous air more violently than on the other, and there excite a reluctancy and reaction of the air proportionably greater. And for the same reason, if the rays of light should possibly be globular bodies, and by their oblique passage out of the medium into another, acquire a circulating motion, they ought to feel the greater resistance from the ambient ether, on that side, where the motions conspire, and thence be continually bowed to the other. But notwithstanding this plausible ground of suspicion, when I came to examine it, I could observe no such curvity in them. And besides, which was enough for my purpose, I observed that the difference betwixt the length of the image and the diameter of the hole through which the light was transmitted was proportionable to their distance. The gradual removal of these suspicions at length led me to the experimentum crucis, which was this. I took two boards and placed one of them close behind the prism at the window so that the light might pass through a small hole made in it for the purpose, and fall on the other board, which I placed at about twelve feet distance, having first made a small hole in it also for some of that incident light to pass through. Then I placed another prism behind the second board. On turning the first prism about its axis, the image which fell on the second board was made to move up and down upon that board, so that all its parts could successively pass through the hole in that board and fall upon the prism behind it. The places where the light fell against the wall were noted. It was seen that the blue light, which was most refracted in the first prism, was also most refracted in the second prism, the red being least refracted in both prisms. 
and so the true cause of the length of that image was detected to be no other than that light is not similar or homogeneal, but consists of difform rays, some of which are more refrangible than others. No more complete or illuminating explanation of the nature of light through the agency of the prism has ever been given than this. Newton showed here the real reason of the dispersion, adducing the analogy of the rainbow, although he clung through it all to the corpuscular theory, postulating the existence not only of the flying particles constituting light, but also of an ether, all the mechanism, in fact, needed for the wave theory and more. It was not until the beginning of the present century that this experiment of Newton's, repeated as it had been in the meantime by many philosophers, was found by Dr. Wollaston to possess certain peculiarities which defied all explanation. He found that by substituting a slit in the shutter of the darkened room for the round hole which Newton had used, the spectrum was intersected by certain dark lines. This announcement, although at the time it did not excite much attention, led to further experiments by different investigators, who, however, vainly endeavored to solve the meaning of these bands of darkness. It was observed by the great Munich optician that they never varied, but always occupied a certain fixed position in the spectrum. Moreover, he succeeded in mapping them to the number of nearly 600, for which reason they have been identified with his name as Freienhofer lines. It was one of the greatest contributions to science. Accidentally, he discovered in the spectrum of a lamp the double line in the orange, now known as the sodium line. He was endeavoring at the time to determine how the refraction through the glass would take place for different colored lights. The observation of the sodium line was a chance incident of his experiments. In oil and tallow light, and in fact in all firelight, he saw this same bright sharply defined double line quote, exactly in the same place and consequently very useful. Examining the spectrum of sunlight cast through a small telescope upon a prism, he remarked, an almost countless number of strong and feeble vertical lines, which, however, were darker than the other parts of the spectrum, some appearing to be almost perfectly black. He also examined starlight with his primitive spectroscope and found many of the solar lines in the spectrum of the planet Venus. For nearly 40 years, the scientific world, absorbed in theories concerning the nature of light itself or the newly announced atomic theory of Dalton and the laws of chemical combination and composition, failed to see the meaning and significance of this discovery of Freudenhofer. The great astronomer John Frederick William Herschel, the electrician Wheatstone, William Henry Fox Talbot, Sir David Brewster, and others, remarked on various similar phenomena in spectral experimentation, but none succeeded in finding the clue to the mystery. Many famous men between 1850 and 1860 turned their attention to this riddle. Herschel pointed out, that metals, when rendered incandescent under the flame of the blowpipe, exhibited various tints. He further suggested that as the color thus shown was distinctive for each metal, it might be possible by these means to work out a new system of analysis. 
Bunsen and Kirchhoff in 1860 discovered that each metal, when in an incandescent state, exhibited through the prism certain distinctive brilliant lines. They also found that these brilliant lines were identical in position with many of Freienhofer's dark lines, or to put it more clearly, each bright line given by a burning metal found its exact counterpart in a dark line on the solar spectrum. It thus became evident that there was some subtle connection between these brilliant lines and the dark bands which had puzzled observers for so many years. Having this clue, experiments were pushed on with renewed vigor until, by happy chance, the vapors of the burning metals were examined through the agency of the electric light. That is to say, the light from the electric lamp was permitted to shine through the vapor of the burning metal under examination, forming, so to speak, a background for the expected lines. It was now seen that what before were bright bands on a dark ground were now dark bands on a bright ground. This discovery of the reversal of the lines peculiar to a burning metal, when such metal was examined in the form of vapor, led to the enunciation of the great principle that vapors of metals at a lower temperature absorb exactly those rays which they emit at a higher to make this important fact more clear, suppose that upon the red-hot cinders in an ordinary fire grate is thrown a handful of saltpeter, also called nitrate of potash or, more commonly, nitre. On looking through the spectroscope at the dazzling molten mass thus produced, instead of the colored ribbons which the sunlight gives, all is black, with the exception of a brilliant violet line at the one end of the spectrum, and an equally brilliant red line at the other. This is a spectrum peculiar to potassium, so that if not previously aware of the presence of that metal, and if requested to name the source of the flame produced, the spectroscope would have enabled such answer without difficulty. Now suppose this burning saltpeter to be again examined under altered conditions place the red-hot cinders in a shovel, and remove them to the open air, throwing upon them a fresh supply of the nitre. If the vapor now be examined while the sunlight forms a background to it, it will be seen that the two bright-colored lines have given place to dark ones. This experiment will prove the truth of Kirchhoff's law, so far as potassium is concerned, for the molten mass first gave the bright lines, and afterward, by examining the cooler vapor, it was evident that they were transformed to bands of darkness. In other words, they were absorbed. The simple glass prism, as used by Newton, although it is the parent of the modern spectroscope, bears very little resemblance to its gifted successor. The complicated and costly instrument now used consists of a train of several prisms through which the ray of light under examination can be passed by reflection more than once. By these means, greater dispersion is gained. That is to say, the resulting spectrum is longer and consequently far easier of examination. Since the middle of the 19th century, the analytical eye of this wonderful instrument has looked into the material universe and aided the chemist to the discovery of elements previously unsuspected and unknown. 
it has shown the composition of sun and stars by the correspondence of their spectra with those of terrestrial matter to be in general identical with that of the earth nor are its services to be measured merely in qualitative units for in examining incandescent bodies by a careful study of the absorption lines a very exact estimate of the quantity present can be arrived at this method of analysis is so delicate that in experiments carried on at the mint a difference of one ten thousandth part in an alloy has been recognized neither must it be supposed that the services of the spectroscope are confined to metals for nearly all colored matter can also be subjected to its scrutiny even the most minute substances when examined by the microscope in conjunction with the prism show a particular spectrum by which they can always be identified while the spectroscope succeeded in proving that a certain yellow flame was the flame of sodium and a certain reddish flame was that of calcium it did not show why the flame of one kind of substance should be brighter than another the flame of burning wood for instance is less bright generally speaking than that of a burning kerosene lamp the flame of phosphorus burning in oxygen is dazzling in its brilliancy a ribbon of the metal magnesium commonly used as a powder in flashlight photographs burns in ordinary air with an intensely brilliant white light. The brightness of these flames cannot be due wholly to temperature, as has often been maintained, for there may be a solid such as iron or carbon burning in oxygen at a high temperature with brilliant incandescence or glowing but without flame, while on the other hand the lambent flame of boric methide or of camphor shows that flame may exist without a high temperature. A piece of burning camphor, in fact, may easily be held in the unprotected palm by changing it from hand to hand, a trick sometimes resorted to by stage jugglers. Again, the ordinary Bunsen burner found in every chemical laboratory will produce, by adjusting the air supply, either a yellow luminous flame of relatively low temperature or a much hotter non-luminous flame whereas the temperature in the exceedingly brilliant electric arc is extreme, reaching in the electric furnace as high as 3,000 degrees centigrade. The real nature of flame was long a matter of conjecture. The phlogiston, fire substance of the 18th century, in fulfillment of the hope expressed by that erratic genius Count Rumford, is today interred, it is true, in the same tomb with caloric heat substance. But the death of phlogiston did not bring with it the explanation of the luminosity of flame. Sir Humphrey Davy, inventor of the Davy safety lamp, regarded the luminosity as due to the incandescence of solid particles suspended in the flame, and his theory, until about the middle of the 19th century, went unchallenged. The presence of solid particles, either in the flame itself or in immediate contact with the burning gas, was held to be essential. There is no doubt that the introduction of solid particles in a fine state of division into a flame of feeble luminosity will usually impart to it a considerable degree of brilliancy by the incandescence of the solid particles, or perhaps in some cases by reflection of the light from their many surfaces 
and it is usual to refer to the black deposit which is formed upon a glass rod or similar body when held in the flame of a candle or gas as a proof that such flames contain solid particles nevertheless luminous effects have been produced where the solid particle hypothesis could not account for them such for example as the luminosity of the flame of hydrogen burning in oxygen under pressure moreover in many of the brightest flames the temperature is such that fuliginous matter could not exist in them in many cases it seemed therefore to be a more satisfactory explanation that the luminosity of flames depends on the existence of a comparatively high temperature and on the presence of gases or vapors of considerable density end of section twelve